The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed, but the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And I'm your co-host, Mike Fussing. And this is your Friday follow-up. In today's episode, we're going to be following up on episode number 252, Face to Face. Episode 252 was a lot of fun to put together. Yeah, it took a lot of work to drop all those clips in, but I was really happy with the way it turned out. I was too, and I feel like every once in a while we need to do one of these episodes. We'll really capture the feels of the work that we're doing. And that trip was a very emotional trip for me. Everything from my long conversation with Johnny to my long talk with Ed and getting to shake Ed's hand and even walking into Stanley's and sitting across the table from David Dobbs. And I hope that we were able to capture those feelings this week for all of you to really have an idea of what it's like for us when we're out in the field doing work like that. Bob cries a lot. (laughs) I had something in my eye several times throughout the trip. (coughs) Bullshit. All right, I'm busted. And the truth of the matter is, I did shed a few tears on that trip. And really, I'm not ashamed to admit that at all. Over the last year, I've become very deeply invested in this case, and a lot of the players in this case. And that emotional attachment is a big part of what drives me to continue doing the work that we're all doing together here. Which is why every once in a while, we try to really capture that emotion for all the listeners. Because without all of you, we wouldn't be able to accomplish anything that we've accomplished in these cases. And that is a big part of the focus of today's Friday follow-up. And before we get started into the content of today's show, I want to take a couple of minutes in this first break to advertise a person who has been a big part of the work that we're doing here. As you all know, we had kind of a snafu with our music a few months ago. And Shane Yoder from Nashville, Tennessee was right there to pick up the ball and write a bunch of custom brand new soundtracks for the show. Well, Shane recently has taken a leap of faith just like I did last year and has started his own business called Yoder Music. And I wanted to take just two minutes to tell you a little bit about what Shane is doing. Look, we all know that telling a loved one how you truly feel is difficult. And my wife will be the first to tell you that shopping for her husband is nearly impossible. I'm a pretty simple guy, so she never really knows what to get me. And that's a common problem. It's tough to find that perfect gift and those perfect words to say I love you. But fortunately for you, Shane and his team of songwriters from Nashville have it down to a science and they're sharing their little secret. Put them in a song. PutThemInASong.com is a group of songwriters based out of Nashville, Tennessee, who tell unique stories like yours every day for a living. Welcome to Bob's house, where we make podcasts. Oh. <laughs> do, 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 do. 
Oh, don't let me stop you. <laughs> well, that's that's really all I have. That's all the lyrics I have for it. But that's why I need Shane Yoder and put them in a song.com. That's true. I'm quite confident that he would do a better job than you just did. Well, that's just mean. Well, Shane and his team are professionals. So let me tell you about PutThemInASong.com. A song lasts forever, and they've created an affordable way to have your own. They will write and record lyrics and melodies over a pre-made music track that you select, or they can record original music that matches your original relationship. Do you have a special Valentine this year? Put them in a song.com. Or maybe a loved one's birthday's coming up. Put them in a song.com. How about celebrating a newborn or lost loved one? Put them in a song.com. Even your wedding vows are with your first dance. What could be better than hearing your song coming over the speakers? Well, now you can. Just go to PutThemInASong.com to get your custom song written and recorded for you. Just go to PutThemInASong.com. All right, Chief. Well, let's get started with the social media segment. Okay. Our first email is from Sarah Hoyt. Hi, Bob and Mike. Some thoughts on the two Cedrics. I'm not inclined to think these Cedrics are two different people. The likelihood that the two people with the same first name, middle initial, and similar last names with only three letters different living in the same building seems low. There's really nothing in Wheeler's statement that negates or contradicts Walker's statement or vice versa. Both are saying they had seen the car before. It seems more likely to me that Wheeler is Walker and gave two statements. Do we have any proof that they are different people? Thanks, Sarah. Okay, it's a good question, Sarah, and it does seem kind of crazy, even ridiculous, that there would be two Cedric T. W.'s living in that same building. As far as proof goes, it just depends on how far you want to go with proof. This is what we have. We have two different statements with two different names that look very similar. The difference is the two statements were taken on two different days. One was taken on Sunday, and the next was taken on Monday. They're both handwritten statements, and the handwriting could not be any more different between the two of these. Also, under the occupation line, one of the statements says the person is a student at Robert E. Lee High School, and the other one says that they're unemployed. So as crazy as it sounds, and I admit it does sound crazy, but so does a lot of things in this case, I think the most likely scenario is, in fact, that there were two different Cedrics that gave statements. In order for these to be the same person, it would have to mean that Cedric number one gave a statement on Sunday, wrote a statement out in very neat cursive, and stated that he was a full-time student at Robert E. Lee High School, and then the next day wrote a completely different statement in printed handwriting that looks nothing like the first statement, and wrote in that he is unemployed. And that scenario to me seems just as unlikely as there being two different Cedrics living in the building. This next email comes from Aileen Orr. Aileen writes, Hi Bob, I've been listening to the show since the beginning, but never reached out before. I'm a big fan and I'm proud of everything that you and the team have been able to accomplish. The teaser about David Dobbs killed me. You said it was very productive and he will be useful in bringing Ed home, but since it was off the record, will there be anything about that that you will be able to share with us? Unfortunately, no, there is nothing that I will be able to share with you. I offered for Mr. Dobb to meet me for a drink off the record. And off the record means off the record. And since Dobbs was willing to go meet a person who has been pretty nasty to him on the podcast and have a civil conversation with me, I definitely have to respect the fact that I told him the conversation would be off the record. 
All that I can really say about the meeting with Dobbs is this. After talking with him for over an hour, my feeling at the end of the conversation was that David Dobbs is willing to look at Ed's case objectively, and that he is definitely not dead set to fight against Ed's post-conviction relief. And other than that, I wish that I could tell you more, but that's really as far as I can go with it. At this point, I'm just going to have to ask you all to trust me that it was a good meeting. There's a little bit more to her email. She also continued to write, Since Ed and his grandmother were the only ones who witnessed Bobby Gorman going through their trash, is that something that could be proved in court? Unfortunately, no, and to be honest with you, it's nothing that would ever come up in court. Since Ed's grandmother has passed away, the reality of what would happen in court is for the appellate, Ed, to get on the stand and say, I saw Bobby Gorman going through my trash which really is not likely to fly. But fortunately for us, what we do have is hard evidence. What will be allowed in court are the photos of the trash can that prove that there was no Jolly Rancher wrapper in the trash can in Elnora's guest bathroom that night. And that means a lot more than Bobby Gorman digging through the trash. All right, Chief, we're moving right into Facebook. Booyah Kasha posts, Haven't finished listening yet, but I'm hoping to hear an update of some kind on Kenny's case. What is new with this case, and is he aware of the twists and turns of Ed's case? This is all so unreal. John Grissom couldn't write such a twisted plot. Okay, the answer to the second part of your question is yes. Kenny is aware of everything that's been happening. And that is mostly due to the work of our transcription team, the two Sarahs and Desiree, who've been transcribing everything that's been said on the show and mailing copies not just to Ed, but also to Kenny. And as far as updates in Kenny's case... We will be discussing Kenny's case in one of the segments on this Sunday's episode, where I'll bring all of you up to speed on what's happening there. All right, and then we have a tweet here from Mike Bond. Mike asks, any word from John Cryer on the unsolved mystery schedule in question? All right, well, that's actually a perfect question to lead us into our break, because after this break, we have the answer to that question. John Cryer and his team at Discount Sushi, his production company, have finally gotten to the bottom of the Unsolved Mysteries dilemma. And we have a short interview coming up with John and Jody Zuckerman right after this break. Well, yeah, before we get going, uh, Mike, did you want to say hi to John? Sure. <laughs> How you doing today, hey, Mr. Mike, Cryer? How's it going? Pretty good. I'm good. How are you? Oh, not bad. Okay, now get off the damn thing. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> okay, this is better. I, I just want to say, by the way, before we start, that uh, that I love uh, uh, Mike's reading on the Stamps.com commercials uh, where he says, never go to the post office again. <laughs> <laughs> because it sounds like a demand. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like you're just telling us. What's going to happen from now on? So, okay, well, Mike said we couldn't go to the post office again, apparently. Right. Uh, so, that's whatever his... you say, Mike. Yeah, that's great. That's Thank a, you. That's that's his catchphrase. Like, he owns that shit. <laughs> yeah, he does. Oh, man, this whole thing is disappointing. I was really hoping you guys were going to have better yeah. news for me. But at least we, I mean, it was never a, a big deal, but it could have been a big deal if it went the other way. I have to say, when you first uh, showed me the um, the stuff from the Tyler newspaper, the the TV guide, I it looked wrong to me. It looked like uh, like uh, first of all, there were uh, entries in in what appeared to be the wrong boxes in the grid, and it seemed very odd that they would have one episode, uh, an hour long episode of Unsolved Mysteries, followed by a half hour episode of Unsolved Mysteries. 
Right. Uh, and then when I couldn't find any uh, any evidence on the internet of a half hour version of Unsolved Mysteries at all, uh, you know that also was a red flag. Uh, so when we we started looking into it, uh, it, it, it turned out to be remarkably hard to find information on that period. And uh, turns out uh, Jody actually had a, uh, a friend at Lifetime who she spoke to. And uh, uh, Jody, I'll let you take it away. So we thought we would start at Lifetime and that perhaps we could get a very quick uh, response to what seemed um, like a simple request. Um, right. But we learned, unfortunately, we learned that Lifetime's electronic records did not start until September of 1993. So we just missed it by a few months because we were looking for July 22nd, oh, wow. 1993. So Lifetime is now, and they had, they had put the request through their New York office, and now they're checking with an executive who's in touch with Grace Note, which is formerly Tribune, to get an electronic copy of the schedule for that day. The second step was going through somebody at Warner Brothers where we have our deal and our friend put us in, our executive friend put us in touch with an executive in their programming research and analysis department. She thought it would be a simple request too, but she found out that Lifetime was not a Nielsen rated network also until September 1993. Of course. Not sure if that's a coincidence. <laughs> so she's also continuing her search and so we're still awaiting final word from Lifetime and Warner Brothers, but they have to access other archives and it's taking longer. Um, so then the next step was going to the Screen Actors Guild, and I spoke with someone in the claims department. So what they do there is they collect residual compensation and help their actors collect that compensation, which is money owed to the actors after the show airs for the first time. Okay. So once it re-airs, they can collect residuals. So we thought they would have a record then of the airings. And SAG did have a record of two showings on the night of July 22nd, 1993, one at 10 p.m. Central Time and one at 11 p.m. But SAG did not know the duration of those shows, so they could not confirm if they were 60-minute episodes or 30-minute episodes. Okay. Did, you know, did they also show a 6 p.m. showing? So the way SAG lists it, yes. Yeah, SAG listed it in Eastern Standard Time. So for July 22nd, there was a 12 a.m. show, a 7 p.m. show, and an 11 p.m. So central time, there, that means there would be a 6 p.m. show and a 10 p.m. Okay. And, and then, then on July 23rd, there was a 12 a.m., which then would be the 11 p.m. central time. So, so far, that, that's all matching up, but we still had that big question mark of what's a 30-minute episode of Unsolved Mysteries because it's an hour-long show. Right. Um, so then John and I were sleuthing on new, newsavers.com. And we found three TV schedules for that day, July 22nd, 1993. Uh, one was from Green Bay, Wisconsin, one from Decatur, Illinois, and the other was from St. Louis, Missouri. Um, and they all had air times for Unsolved Mysteries on Lifetime, 10 p.m. to 11 p.m. Central Time, and 11 p.m. to 11.30 p.m. Central Time. Right. So those did corroborate with the Tyler Courier Times TV schedule, but that Tyler schedule looked a little confusing because it didn't have the VCR plus codes and it also had 30 something in that same 11 p.m. time block. Um, but those schedules all matched. So it was still a mystery to us about these half hour versions of Unsolved Mysteries. We couldn't figure that out. So I then reached out to one of the producers of Unsolved Mysteries, Terry Muir, and she called me right back the next morning. She was very helpful and she actually didn't recall initially the 30 minute episodes, but she and her colleague went back through their archives and said they actually did air both 
60-minute episodes and 30-minute episodes when Unsolved Mysteries was in syndication. So she didn't have a schedule of the airings, but she could confirm uh, for us that these Unsolved Mysteries were both 60-minute and 30-minute episodes. Um, She could only say that it aired three times a day, which is what SAG confirmed as well. Right. So, so at the end of the day, when we look at the whole thing, it looks like what the the prosecution's version of the TV schedule that they presented at trial is actually accurate. That there was a showing at ten and one at eleven, and that second eleven o'clock episode was thirty minutes. Is the most seems to me is the most likely scenario here. That's the only thing we've found evidence of so far. Although interestingly, I I, uh, I found on eBay an old TV guide from that week. Uh, unfortunately, it's from the East Coast. Um, that shows a different show airing after uh, the 11:30 hour, um, which is unusual. I don't know why a a, a local station would uh, suddenly have a different show uh, at that point when they generally just carry the whole uh, the whole schedule of the the network. So there, so you know, there will always be some gray area in these schedules, unfortunately. But the totality of the evidence does suggest that. That is an accurate representation of the schedule for that night. So, so no bombshell. Oh, we are still here. waiting. No bombshell, but we are still waiting for final word from Lifetime and Warner Brothers based on their archives. Right. Well, and and, and like I said when we first started talking, that it's it's unfortunate because this it really doesn't mean much the way we found it, but it could have meant a lot. Uh, if we were able to move the mm-hmm. timeline up with this, but uh, kind of the amazing part to me is is what you guys have just done has, is a perfect example of what we're trying to accomplish with Truth and Justice is t- to have this this army of listeners that all have their own talents. I mean, the, who would have thought that you know an uh, an actor and 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 producer <laughs> like like your like your, your particular skill set was what was able to figure this out for us? It's 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 really incredible. It, it's remarkable to me how hard it was, actually, um, that, you know, really people aren't keeping particularly good records of this stuff. Jody and I were, are both nuts about these kind of things. You know, it's like she was like a dog with a bone, as you can tell. I mean, oh, my right. gosh. Uh, and by the way, this is not her day job. <laughs> her day job is developing TV shows for my production company. Right, right. Uh, you know, <laughs> um but it is, but it is, you know, it, it is an, uh, amazing when you th- when you start thinking about okay, what possible resources do I have personally that can help? And turns out I had more than I realized, you know, and and the Jody had more than she realized, you know, as as much as we would have loved to have provided information that uh, that helped, you know, it, it appears that uh, that particular aspect is, is as was presented. Right. And one thing, you know, as producers, uh, one of our strengths is is tapping into our vast network of relationships. So it was great to get our friends at Lifetime and Warner Brothers on board, and they were so excited to help the cause and get involved and do their sleuthing as well. Um, and they both were disappointed that they had initially come up empty and that these electronic records, unfortunately, didn't start until September of 93. But they're continuing the search, and they're pushing on with their colleagues back east to try to get uh, further information for us. So it really is amazing. And then people that we cold called too, and just we represented ourselves and explained what we were looking for. And um, both at the Screen Actors Guild and Terry Muir, who is the producer on Unsolved Mysteries, were so happy to help. And it was really nice to have their support. Yeah. And by the way, there is a very small possibility that the TV guide schedule, I mean, all these newspapers get their schedule from the same place. 
You know, so right. it's possible that that schedule was in fact wrong, and the final arbiter of that will be Lifetime. You know, they're the ones who who would have the final uh, say on that. So, you know, there is a possibility that those TV guides were in error, but it does seem like an awful lot of evidence to suggest that uh, that they weren't. Yeah, and the big thing for me was finding out from the Unsolved Mysteries producers that they did in fact because they did. They don't list when you look online that there was ever a 30-minute episode, but but getting the information from them that once it was in syndication, they would air 30-minute episodes was the big – because that, that that's kind of what was making the whole thing impossible, is that there was no 30-minute episodes. But knowing that, that kind of changes the outlook on the whole thing. Yes, I, I uh, used to watch Unsolved Mysteries. I enjoyed it myself, uh, actually, and I just had no memory of half-hour episodes. It seemed like the format was intrinsically an hour. You know, they would they did tell three stories, and then they would have an update. I remember that. I enjoyed the show. Um, you know, I don't know how they cut it down to a half hour. You know, maybe they don't have updates, or they just you, you know use two stories. Or at any rate, I, I you know it, it's all speculation at this point, but. The lack of records is ha, was frustrating, and that they that we would have had much easier records to access if uh, if only the information we were looking for were two months later uh, is very frustrating. Um, but uh, uh, you know, we we will get the final word from Lifetime, and uh, and we will let you know as soon as we can. All right. Well, and we really really appreciate all your help. I mean, it, to be honest, it, finding out for sure what exactly happened seemed like an insurmountable task. But like I said, it just goes to show that you know, this happens to be an area of, of not only your expertise, but where you and Jody have all these connections and we're able to just the fact that we were able to figure out what happened on the TV guide schedule from 25 years ago is is crazy. And, that, you know, that's that goes to show for the you know, for the listener that's sitting at home knitting that someday we're going to have a question to help solve a murder about knitting. Like everybody has a skill set yeah. that can be used at some point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the knitting needle murders of 1989. Well, you're going to bust that case open. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Everyone was so excited to participate and help us with this. Yes, exactly. Like the, the lady at the Screen Actors Guild, it, it's not her job to do this kind of thing. And she gladly took the time and was incredibly helpful. Uh, you know, everybody, everybody was really great. Well, that's great. And we want to thank you guys so much. I know you're both very busy and you took time out not only to do this work, but to call in for the show. So, We'll let you get back to work, but again, thank you so much for all of your ongoing support, and especially for this specifically. Yeah, and thank you, Bob, and and uh, and thank you for everything you're doing uh, for Ed and uh, Ed Eights and Kenny Snow, and uh, you know the the last few episodes have been really uh, fantastic, and uh, I'm really excited to hear about your your meeting with David Dobbs. Well, unfortunately, this wasn't good news for us from John and Jody, but the good news is that we have the answer. And we have the answer because John Cryer and Jody Zuckerman, just like all of you, happen to have a particular skill set that you would not think would be relevant in the investigation into a murder. But when the time arose, they were able to tap into their resources to help us get to the bottom of this. And that is the power of the truth and justice movement. And now let's move right along to the rest of our phone calls. All right, I am now on the air with uh, Mike. Wrote on the screen that he's not sure he got this right, so you guys might have to correct me. But it says Lucky, <laughs> Lucky, and Karina from Sydney, Australia. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. We're, we're from Melbourne. From Melbourne. Yeah. Okay. Well, that sounds great. Well, thanks for what. It must be middle of the day on Thursday there by now, right? Yeah, eleven o'clock. Stay at work right now. <laughs> 
Oh, good. Uh, well, then, then we won't keep you too long, so you guys can get back to work. Uh, he's, Mike says you have two questions for me. What do, we, what do you have? Yeah, okay, so this is Karina. So one of the questions we had was we wanted to confirm that the seat was all the way forward in Elnora's car. You wanted to confirm that the seat was pushed <laughs> all the way forward? Yes, because one of one of the things we were thinking is how about if Elnora actually put her car there herself and nobody had moved it. So, for instance, if she was expecting somebody and she parked her car a little bit more forward so somebody could park behind her, or if somebody had already parked their car there, so she went around to park in front of them so they were able to leave. Okay, uh, that's a possibility, I think, for sure, that, that Elnora had moved her own car. I don't think that it's a possibility that she did it in order to make room for someone to park behind her. And the reason for that is that she had a very long driveway, and where she normally parked, yeah. you could park you know, 20 more cars behind her. There was no reason to pull up farther forward for, in order for somebody to do that. Uh, and then what did you yeah. say your, your, your second thought was? Maybe she just like pulled it around somebody so that they could get out, like if they were there before her? Yes. Yeah. That is a possibility, but again, there's a lot of space there. Uh, but I think that certainly one possibility is, and we haven't really addressed this yet, is the possibility that Elnora might have moved her car there because she didn't want anyone to know that she was home. Or, you know, for example, yeah. say if she was expecting one person and thought another person might stop by, maybe she would move her car. Uh, but but even with that, then you have to you have to think about uh, obviously if she pulled her car all the way up up like that and the first person got there then someone driving by would see the other car there so it, they're all possibilities i don't i don't know you know what the real probability of it is but it's definitely a possibility cuz you're also thinking what is the evidence to show that her car was moved by someone is it only the fact that it was parked somewhere she doesn't usually park or was there tire tracks or there anything else cuz the fact that the seat was all the way forward made made us think Maybe no, nobody touched the car. Maybe it was her that had put it in that particular position. Yeah, well, we don't know, again, like a lot of things, what evidence there was. So there should be tire tracks. It was on a dirt parking lot. Uh, there should be footprints yeah. around it, things like that. We don't have any photos of it, and we don't have any notes to that regard. So, yes, really the only evidence okay. we have that the killer moved the car is simply the fact that according to Johnny and Ed and Margie and Mrs. Dews and everybody at the time, she never parked her car there. So according to what they yeah. say. So that's really the only evidence we have. There may have been more, but if there is, it wasn't documented and we don't know about it. Okay. And we had one other question. Um, so it's just about the nail clipping. So we were just wondering if the, there was nail polish on the actual clipping. On the clippings, which clippings are you talking about? Are you talking about the ones that are stored in the forensic lab right now or the ones that were just found loose on the crime scene? Yeah, the ones that were found loose on the ground. Uh, I think there was two chips that they maintained, plus some clippings from the floor uh, near and around her, her body. But I believe they all had nail polish okay. on them, yes. And do we know if the colors are the same? We know that the colors were not the same as the color that Elnora had on her fingers at that time. That was noted in the cool. autopsy report. So we were just thinking that possibly maybe, like, say, Elnora had a shower and was cleaning herself or drying herself, and now polish is chipped off onto her buttock, and then maybe she got out of the shower and looked at her nails and thought, okay, maybe I'll repaint them and clip them before someone comes over, and then she's painted them, clipped them, and put them aside, and then it's all happened. Oh, that's a really good possibility. I, I I don't necessarily know if I if I can go along with that's how the chip got on her buttock and stayed there that whole time. 
But what you just said actually makes a lot of sense because one thing that I was thinking, uh, and really this kind of just triggered this thought of me, what you just said is Elnora has been described from everyone that has talked to me about her as being neat as a pin, kept the place very tidy. You can tell from the photographs on the crime scene, like everything. I was just today looking through photos of the kitchen and it's there's not a speck of dust in that house. So it seems odd that she would have all these fingernail clippings just there on the floor. It may be possible that while she was maybe waiting for company, that maybe that night she had went ahead and clipped her fingernails and painted them and just hadn't vacuumed since then. And that's why maybe there was a couple of nails on the floor. So that definitely is a good thought. Cool. Well, that's awesome. Well, thank you, Lucky and Karina. Now, you said you're from Melbourne, not not Sydney, correct? (laughs) Yeah, correct. Thank you. Thank you for calling. It was great to hear from you. Great to talk to you. Thanks, Bob. All right. I'm on the air with Kathleen from Idaho. How are you doing tonight, Kathleen? I'm great. How are you, Bob? I'm doing really well. Mike says you have several questions for me, so let's hear what you got. Okay, so the first one, kind of my biggest one, um, I was looking at the autopsy report, and it says that Elnora's carotid artery was cut. So you're a fireman, you probably know this, but um, the carotid artery has such intense blood pressure flowing through it that it would shoot blood like super hard, super far. And I was just curious, There, it doesn't seem to be any, like, pictures of that blood spatter. I mean, was there any, or is there a reason why she didn't have that arterial spray? Well, the, the blood spatter is really strange. That's a, that's a really good question, and it's actually a question I've been wondering about this whole time. And we have a few issues here. So, for starters, we have a, a brown, dark brownish, reddish carpet that we're dealing with. So in right. The, and, and we're dealing with 25-year-old photos, scans of 25-year-old photos. I can't tell exactly what blood spatter there is on the floor. And furthermore, it's not discussed anywhere in any of the reports. You know, they they didn't use, typically they would use like a black light or something to try to, what you're looking for is something called shadowing. The blood spatter, the arterial spray, typically there's a lot of force behind it and it will it will yeah. shoot out quite a ways and, and there's been instances where forensic investigators were actually able to find the exact like silhouette of the person that was standing in front of them killing them uh when their throat yeah. was split because of the the shadowing effect of the spray uh so we don't we don't have any of that and that could mean a couple of things it could mean that there isn't any um so one thing that that a lot of people don't realize with arterial spray like that from we we think you know we've seen it in the movies and and in real life it is true uh, if you if you cut an artery, you're going to every time your heart pumps, it's going to squirt blood a long ways, whether it be on your throat or your wrist or anywhere else. If if you hit an artery, uh, the issue with the uh, throat being slit like that is that not just one carotid artery was slit, but they both were. So a lot of that de- hmm. depends on how quick of a cut that was. So if because what happens is if you cut both carotid arteries, excuse me, if you cut both carotid arteries, your 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 body is going to run out of blood pressure immediately. It's a pressurized system. Right. All these hoses and pipes. It, it, you sound like you know what you're talking about, Kathleen. What do you do for a living? Um, I was an EMT in Baltimore for a while. Okay, so you you know exactly what I'm talking about. So when uh, we have this this pressurized closed system of the circulatory system, and you slice through two major arteries, both of the carotid arteries, you're going to lose blood pressure almost down to zero almost immediately. And so therefore, in that instance, there's no pressure to continue spurting like as the heart is still beating. There will still be some spray, of course, right at the beginning, but it's not going to be like if you would just cut one and the heart continued to beat for a couple of minutes, every time it beat, it would just spray and spray and spray. There's other things that can account for this too. So it could be that Elnora had her hand 
uh, her hand up to the wound as it's cutting. So someone has their arm over, they're cutting it, she's reaching, trying to stop it, and say they slice underneath her hand, and she's holding her throat, well, that would stop any kind of spray. The spray would just be hitting her hand. It wouldn't be going all over the room. It's not entirely impossible that there was a second person standing in front of her that may have absorbed some of that. But to be honest, from what I've seen from the scene, I think that the most likely scenario is that she was covering the wound with her own hand since both carotid arteries were cut uh, at least close to the same time. Blood pressure was lost almost immediately, and therefore the spray would stop almost immediately. And that's evident, too, when you read the Emmy's report about some of the wounds. So she has a wound, I believe it's on her left elbow, where a knife took a chunk of her skin off. And that wound shows Mm -hmm. no sign of, of bleeding or reaction to that. So what that means is her heart was done pumping before that cut happened. So it didn't scab, it didn't bleed, it didn't do anything because the heart wasn't pumping anymore. Well, this instance, the the incident, once the the throat is being slit, from the time her throat was slit till she hit the ground is a matter of a second or two, probably. And the the body was already completely void of blood pressure since we have no reaction to that, that wound on her elbow. So it tells us that the body lost its blood pressure very, very, very quickly, almost immediately. And and again, that's we're, we're having to do some speculation because we don't know exactly how things went down. But given the medical evidence that we have and the evidence on the crime scene, I think it's safe to say that within a second or two of the, the fatal wound to the neck, Elnora was down on the ground and, and, and it was over. Uh, and considering in that amount of time, the cut on her elbow didn't bleed. I think that that most likely what happened was she had her hand to the wound that caught the initial spurt. After the initial spurt, her body was void of blood pressure, and then the rest of the blow just kind of flowed out by gravity once she was down on the ground. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Good, I'm glad you agree since you're an EMT. Because <laughs> well, I thought I had read that only her right carotid was cut, but yeah, if both were cut, that would definitely, all her blood would be gone in less than 30 seconds. Yeah, and, and if uh, if memory serves, I believe it was only her right jugular vein was cut. I believe it got the right jugular vein, both carotid arteries, and didn't get the left jugular. Because as you know, the jugular veins, the part that returns the blood right. to the heart, is towards the outside of the neck, where the carotid arteries both lay right next to the windpipe. Right. All right, that's one down. What okay, else you got? Okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. Okay, so you had mentioned in when you were reading Detective Waller's um, investigation that a judge was called to the scene for an inquest. What's an inquest? That's a really good question, Kathleen. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's, to be honest, that's one of those things I just read past because uh, what happened was the judge showed up and he ordered an autopsy, basically, is what happened. He ordered the body, I think that's what it said, to be sent to uh, to the ME's office for an autopsy to be performed. There's someone listening to this that knows exactly what it means. It's going to correct me <laughs> along with any other words that I say wrong, like people mixing words rather than mincing them. Well, I'm sure we'll hear about all that this week. But you know, for me, it's, it's inquest. So it's like it's some kind of an inquiry. That, what I got out of it that I read past it was that they had a judge come and since they didn't have the family there, issue an order for an autopsy to be performed. That was my understanding okay. of it, but I don't know that that's exactly accurate. Okay, that makes sense, yeah. Well, my dad was a, a prosecutor when I was growing up, so he told me a lot about stuff that goes on, and I had never heard of that before, so that was kind of strange, but okay, cool. Maybe we could ask your dad and then email me and let me know. <laughs> you know, I should. I should call him. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and you said you had one more? 
Yeah, it was more kind of just kind of pointing out the fact that I don't understand how Monica knows so many details about the shoes that they had collected from Ed because I honestly, I couldn't tell you that much detail about my own husband's shoes or my kid's shoes. Like, and I see them every day. Like, <laughs> that blew my mind. Yeah, it did me too because she did. She described them in detail and they, they hadn't been collected. Yes. They, they didn't take Ed's shoes that night. They scraped something off him and sent him home. They didn't collect him into evidence until later after he was, right after he was arrested, I believe. Did they question her after they collected him or before as far as when she was describing the shoes? Before. So they had, uh, they, they took Ed in at 11 o'clock at night, around 11 on Friday night. They called Monica during that time, and then at 7 in the morning, the police cleared and went to the scene, and then they called Monica again that next morning, and she that, that Saturday morning, Monica came down and, and gave a recorded statement, and that's when she was describing the shoes and the clothes that he was wearing. I don't know. The only thing that makes sense to me, and, and it's a good question, and when I talk to Ed tomorrow, I'll, I'll ask him about that, so I might have a little further on that uh, for next week. Because the only oh. thing I could think of is Ed has told me over and over again that those shoes were brand new. Like he was like every time he talked about him ste- stepping in, you know, the Hugo <laughs> claimed that as he was walking out to his car, he said, oh, I must have stepped in dog shit. And Ed has emphatically said, I would never do that. They were my <laughs> brand new shoes. I had saved up my money and just bought those shoes. They were brand new. So that the only thing that makes me think. <laughs> right. Yeah, so the only thing that makes me think that maybe Monica remembers them is because maybe he was showing them off to her that night, like, check out my new shoes, and she really got a good look at them. It never really says in the interview, but I think that that's a possibility. Or it could just be that she's a shoe connoisseur and was really, because she did, she described them in detail. There were Velcro, there were laces under them, the colors that were on them. She yeah, knew a lot yeah. about them. But I wonder if that's the the answer to that is that they were brand new, so Ed was showing off his brand new shoes to Monica. Yeah, that is a really good point because then it, in that case you would pay attention to what they look like specifically. Right, right. Okay, well, hey, thank you, Kathleen, so much for calling. Those are all three really good questions, and I appreciate you calling in. Yeah, thank you so much, Bob. Yep, have a great night. You too. All right, I'm on the air with TJ Cunahan from Pennsylvania. How you doing tonight, TJ? Good, Bob. How are you? I'm doing really well. Mike's a, wait a minute. Did you just call in to shamelessly plug your podcast? No, not at all. I let you shamelessly plug it for me. Right. The, uh, the Pints and Puzzles podcast by TJ Cunahan. You owe me $200 now, TJ. There we go. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I'll put it um, on your tab. <laughs> thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah. So what's up, TJ? Um, so a couple things. A little bird told me that it's your birthday today, or at least Friday when this airs. So happy birthday. I want to put that out there in the podcast world for you. Well, thanks, TJ. And everybody's more than welcome to send me any birthday gifts to P.O. Box. Douchebag. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm kidding. I'll send you a nice Harry's Razor using the promo code uh, Justice. Now, That's right. right. Harry's Razor's promo code Justice. Okay, so once we're past the birthday thing, and thank you, by the way, for wishing me a happy birthday. Mike said you have something about the next case. Yeah, so mine, it was just more of a logistical question where, are you going straight into the next case? You seem to have kind of wrapped up the Ed Ace case pretty well. I was just curious if you were taking a break between now and then or just going straight into it or kind of what your plan was. We're going to roll right into it. We've been kind of investigating, you know, the, the tail end of Ed's case, and we began the investigation into the next case. We've already got some interviews recorded. But, no, we're not going to take a break. Our Our plan is for the next three weeks, so this Sunday, two days after this airs, uh, this week's episode is going to be the final episode as far as the investigation into Ed's case. But it's kind of we're, we're going to be buttoning up loose ends over the next couple of weeks before we pass the baton okay, on great. to Allison. So. 
So this week, we're going to cover everything we know about Francis Johnson that we've figured out over the last couple of months. And then I want to do an episode about Elnora. So you can expect in the next two weeks to have an episode about Francis. And then I'm going to do an episode all about Elnora and, and really make an effort to give Elnora her voice back. And then we'll do one more episode that is the Passing the Baton episode where Allison Clayton will be on the show. She'll talk about what's going on, where we're going from here, and then we'll we'll quite literally be passing the baton on to Allison Clayton of the Innocence Project, where she's now going to take our entire investigation we've done for the last year and take it into court. And then the very next week, we'll be dropping the first episode for our next case. That's the plan. Great. Well, I'm looking forward to it, man. Me too? Is that what, what do I say? That was it. That was good. Me too. Uh, thanks for calling TJ. Okay, good. There. <laughs> what, what was that? <laughs> you kind of just left it there. You're like, uh, I, I don't know how to end conversations, TJ. <laughs> all right, that sounds really good yeah, to no, you. You think you just hang up on me. That's I know, I'm used to all, hearing your voice on off-duty and hanging up on you. <laughs> all right, well, yeah, thanks a lot for that, TJ, and thank you so much for calling in and for the birthday wishes. Appreciate it, brother. Sure, take care, man. Yep, see ya. Okay, well, that's all the time we have for today. We want to thank you all for downloading this episode. And as always, we want to thank you for all of your support and all of your engagement in every way that you give it. Make sure you download Sunday's episode. We're going to be covering Francis Johnson and Kenny Snow this weekend. And we'll be taking follow-up calls on Wednesday the 8th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And until then, see ya! Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Mike Bussing. All the music for the show is created by Shane Yoder of Yoder Music. Our logo for the follow-up episodes is created by Amanda Meyer at willowphotoanddesign.com. I want to thank our transcription team, Sarah Hoyt, Sarah Mueller, and Desiree Dunn. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your support and engagement. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Send new cases into cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Like the Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice.